listening to an Economy Matters podcast produced by the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. The Federal Open Market Committee concluded a two-day meeting earlier today. The pace of job today. growth has been strong. Downside risks to the outlook for the economy. number of Fed officials. The shadow banking system is large. We've come a long way since the darkest day of the financial crisis. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Economy Matters podcast. I'm Tom Heintjes, Managing Editor of the Atlanta Fed's Economy Matters magazine, and today we're speaking with Federico Mandelman, a research economist and associate advisor at the Atlanta Fed. Thanks for being here with us today, Federico. Thank you very much. In 2014, Federico wrote a working paper titled Offshoring, Low-Skilled Immigration, and Labor Market Polarization. So it's not brand new research, but it struck me as being a timely topic to return to for a, a podcast discussion. So I wanted to start out by asking you, Federico, uh, what led you to look into the effects of offshoring and immigration on U.S. employment? We've seen that immigration and offshoring can be fraught issues, generating intense passions both ways. Uh, did that potential minefield give you any pause? Thanks again for your interest, uh... It's true that I started working on this in 2014, but that's a project that I started around that time, but I continue working on this. Actually, before coming here, I was working on this paper. I see. I want to finish the last version that I will submit to a journal soon. Right. So it's an ongoing process, and it's uh, quite interesting. So, well, I tell you how I started working on this. Right. Yeah, as you know, the Federal Reserve has a dual mandate. Right. Low inflation and high employment. And in the aftermath of the crisis, inflation was not really a concern. And for mo- most of us, the real concern was employment. At some point during a meeting, there was a, a presentation made by one of the participants in the FOMC meetings about the polarization of employment. So at the time, they were talking the idea that most of the jobs being lost were jobs uh, that belonged to middle-skilled workers. So based on that, uh, one of our colleagues made a presentation of one, of one paper being written on this uh, issue, and that's how I became interested in this, in this topic. Right. So when you say middle skill and you write about low skill, can you give some examples of each type just so we can sort of get a base of reference? Exactly. So we have uh, high-skilled workers that are uh, professionals, technicians, and then when you go to the middle skills, usually you find the so-called blue-collar workers, right. workers in manufacturing. And then you also find white-collar workers, like uh, administrative workers, people in working in customer service, uh, and these kind of occupations. And then when you go to the left uh, tail of the skill distribution, you have workers that do work like being nannies, you know, child care, home health aides, gardeners, uh, janitors, uh, cleaners, right. I mean house cleaners. Mm-hmm. So those are the like the big three divisions that we could make. Right. I see. I see. Uh, well, in your paper, you write that over the last several decades, employment has expanded for high and low skill occupations while employment for middle skill occupations actually shrank. But wages did not follow this pattern. Uh, what pattern did wages follow? Yeah, essentially you're right. So when we look at employment, we see that there is a symmetry for employment and wages for high-skilled and middle-skilled workers. So for high-skilled workers, you have a very good employment prospects. 
so robust employment growth, in coincidence with the robust wage growth. For middle-skilled workers, is the opposite. Middle-skilled workers uh, witness job losses over the course of the last three decades, but also stagnant wages. So there is a coincidence between employment and wages for these two groups. However, for the lowest skilled, it's more like an asymmetry uh, reality. Right. Even though employment growth was robust, so many jobs were created for the lowest skilled, wages also remain somewhat stagnant. Right. So the reason why we say that this is an asymmetric polarization. For middle skilled workers and high skilled workers, employment and wages move in the same direction. For low skilled workers, even though there were employment gains being recorded, wages remain also stagnant. I see. Your paper discusses two effects on unemployment, offshoring and the immigration of low-skill employees. Uh, let's take these one at a time. Uh, why does offshoring affect middle-skill employment more than low-skill employment? Yes, that's a good point. Actually, that's one of the main uh, topics of the paper. So I did that. Let's look at the middle-skill uh, jobs. Okay. Um, these are the jobs typically held by the middle class. So here we find jobs like in manufacturing. Manufacturing used to be very important in the 70s and right. before that. Sure. And also you, we find the so-called white-collar jobs, like administrative workers, as I say, for telemarketers, people in support and all that. These kind of occupations are easy to offshore overseas. So usually if you know, if you work in, let's say you work in manufacturing, let's say you are assembling a product. Right. It is very easy to have someone doing exactly the same type of task in China. Sure. The same for white collar, for many white collar jobs. Let's say that you are making, a, you are providing customer service. Right. You can do that in Atlanta for someone living in New York, or you can do the same if you are in India. But it's harder to send a cashier to China, for example. Yes, so of course you have exceptions, no? I'm not trying to say that all the middle-skilled jobs are like that. Right. You have exceptions, but in general, when you look at all the occupations that are categorized as middle-skilled occupations, these occupations uh, in general, of course, in all, we always are going to find many exceptions, but in general are occupations that are subject to offshoring, no? Uh, and I say the most typical example is manufacturing. Sure. But also an accountant, you know, let's say that you are like in accounting, working in accounting, nothing prevents someone doing exactly the same work in Sweden. And then once you finish with your job, you send it by email to a person living in New York. Sure. We even so, hear about people reading x-rays in other countries. Yeah, so there are yeah. many occupations like that, uh, that with the advancement, the, the impressive advancement in communications that we witnessed in the last 30 years, but also, you know, making a, an international phone call and monitoring someone working overseas is very cheap now. Sure, sure. 30 years ago was very expensive. Just thinking about making an international phone call was costly. Nowadays, you can monitor workers in the other side of the world, and it's very cheap to do that. Right. So that uh, means that many of these middle-skilled jobs uh, are threatened by the offshoring wave. Right. But then the question is, why low-skilled occupations are 
not affected by offshoring? That, that was a question I... What do you find? What I find is that when you look at low-skill occupations, these occupations, what I call this, these are like a non-tradable occupations. So these are occupations that are impossible to offshore. And I give you some examples. Let's say that you are a, a nanny. No? You take care of babies. Sure. Really, you don't need to get any training for that. So you are considered to be low skill and it's a low wage job. But you know that it's impossible to offshore this kind of occupation to China. You would maybe you would like to hire I would like to hire someone in Philippines to take care of my children. I know that's not possible. But when you look at all these low skill occupations, most of them are actually protected from offshoring. I give you another example. Let's say that you work in the food industry. You are a waiter. Again, a waiter job is low skill. You don't need training, but you cannot offshore this occupation. Right. A gardener. Gardening, you know, the gardener has to be right. located where the, the garden is. Right. Same with construction. Construction shops, many of them are low skilled. Or same with home health aids, taking care of old people. Uh, cleaning services. Uh, those occupations tend to be low skill. This is what we call service occupations. But in my view, that what I wanted to emphasize in that paper is that these occupations are not substitute offshoring. Okay, so you cannot offshore these low skill jobs. Right. Middle skill jobs like manufacturing are easy to offshore. And then when you look at the high skill jobs, it's true that in principle many of them could be offshore. But the U.S. in general have a comparative advantage on, on that. Let's say, for instance, research and development. In principle, nothing prevents to develop a new drug in Thailand. But you know that the best universities are in the U.S. So if you want to develop a new product or develop a new, I a new iPhone, the, the brain power is going to be in the yeah. U.S. So the U.S. has a comparative advantage on that. Right. The same with managerial skills or brand recognition. So the, for the high-skilled jobs, even though that for many of them, in principle, you could offshore them, the U.S. has a comparative advantage on that. So really the ones that are suffering the most were the middle-skilled occupations. I see. Let's turn to, uh, to immigration and yes. the question of immigration in your paper. Uh, how does immigration specifically affect employment? Uh, doesn't it also affect um, high-skill employment? We hear about HP2 visas and, mm. and things like that. Yeah, it's true that the immigration is also polarized. You have a lot of low-skilled immigrants, but also you have a sizable amount of high-skilled immigrants. In my paper, uh, this is something that economists tend to do. We abstract from something to focus in, in, in other things. So in my paper, I abstracted from high-skill immigration. Right. Uh, I think it's a topic that deserves more research. But give it a, given, we, you know, that's something that we usually do in economics. We try to focus, and, and I, I avoid studying the, this issue. But still, I want to emphasize that even though high-skill immigration is important, the vast majority of the immigrants that arrived in the last 30 years I wouldn't say the vast majority, but most of them were low skilled. Right. So I think that that's the reason why my interest was most on, on, on that. You've talked a lot about a changing employment dynamic, and how do households respond to this sort of changing employment dynamic? First of all, let me summarize a bit of my idea of 
what is the role of immigration on, in all this. So as I said before, one of the key findings is that low-skill occupations cannot be offshored. Right? However, immigration is an alternative. If you cannot offshore a nanny, one alternative is to bring immigrants. And actually, that's what happened. Uh, in the last 30 years, uh, migration increased significantly. The number of foreign-borns were about 6% in 1980, and 30 years later went to 13%. Wow. This immigration was mostly low-skilled. Uh, and as expected, much of the employment growth in low-skilled occupations was the result of uh, immigrants filling this uh, job post. So the idea is that this is in, in the model what explains the asymmetric part of polarization. So even though there was a big demand for low-skill occupations, the fact that we have an increasing amount of immigrants coming into the U.S., that resulted like in a supply effect. So an increasing number of immigrants end up putting downward pressures on low-skill wages. Right, I see. So the reason why, even though employment, when you look at the aggregate, employment for low-skill increase, as immigrants arrive into the U.S., this will tend to put a, a downward pressure on, on, sure. on low-skill wages. Sure. So the question is, as I said before, there are two things that I was interested in this. So first of all, what are the welfare implications? So are, are the natives better or worse off in, in, with this uh, offshoring and immigration? And also, another thing that I wanted to explore, what was, what was the reaction of households to this new reality? First of all, uh, let me tell you a bit what is the welfare impact of immigration and offshoring. What is what I find in my, in my study? I find that even though immigration results in lower low-skill wages, so immigration dampen low-skill wages, they have an aggregate positive impact in the U.S. economy for two reasons. The first reason that happens to be very important, so, you know, I, I essentially I try to elaborate a model and try to, it's a bit complicated to explain here, but I try to see what is the, the impact of immigration on the well-being of the people. So it's true that I find that immigration tends to lower uh, low-skill wages, but there are two important benefits that come from low-skill immigration. One that is very important, that is uh, immigrants keep uh, services cheap. So to give you an example, if let's say like we have a household, no? and we have two professionals in the household. The fact that you can count on a, on with a cheap nanny because there are immigrants, let's say that you are in California. Because of immigrations, uh, childcare is much more cheaper than would have been otherwise. Right. Okay? So if you can, if you can count with cheap childcare, that means that one of the partners can go to a shop market. Let's say you have two professionals in the in at home, right? Wife and a husband. Both of them went to college and they want to uh, be productive members of society and use their skills. If you don't have the cheap childcare, and this happens in countries like Japan, it's impossible right. for a woman to go to a shop market. 
And actually, if you, Japan maybe is the, is the extreme example of that. In Japan, you don't have immigration. And not surprisingly, the female labor participation is very low. And the fertility rates are very low too because many women have to decide either I have a kid or I go to a job right. market. Or whenever they have a kid, they have to quit the labor force. Yeah. And the same with many other services. I mean, the fact that you have immigrants means that many of the services like gardening, like restaurants or even construction, uh, like homes, will be, they are much more cheaper because of the immigrants. And of course, if you have something that is cheaper, that provides you uh, some benefits. Right. And not only that, uh, if you compare this, you know, if you take into account that everyone is competing with workers overseas, the fact that American workers can come with uh, cheap services that made them some comparative advantage with workers in other locations. But, but maybe I'm going too far. But I, I guess that you have the idea that the most important thing that you have to have in mind is that cheap services are highly beneficial for the average American. No? Right. So when you when you talk about this yeah. this dynamic at work with immigration and employment, uh, did you detect any sort of responses among households in terms of how they adapt to it or adjust to it? Okay, and that's the other thing. So we only have cheap services, but also we we rely on some research. Actually, there are many papers coming on this, showing that households react to low skill migration. So if you have a lot of low-skilled immigrants coming into your neighborhood, the natural reaction is to get more skills, no? Because you don't want to compete with the low-skilled immigrant. You don't want to be low-skilled when you have the potential competition of immigrants doing the same kind of work. So in places where immigration tends to be uh, more robust, right. consistently we see that natives react to that by acquiring more skills. Right, going with By getting more education, going to a college, or getting an associate degree. So let us try to distinguish themselves from the lower skill by acquiring more skills. Right. And actually, this is a beneficial for them, a beneficial for the economy, because if you have more skilled workers, they tend to be more productive. Sure, sure. Uh, but if you don't have immigration, then naturally, many of these natives will have incentives to fill these occupations that uh, no one is doing. No? Right. So if you don't have immigrants, maybe becoming a gardener or becoming a nanny will be more attractive because you could get a relatively higher salary. Right. Uh, so that's uh, the thing that we see, that immigration, in fact, results in two things that are highly beneficial over the long term. First, things are cheaper, and services are cheaper and allows you to do other kinds of occupations, uh, and then it creates an incentive to train, to right. get the skills right. so that you don't need to compete with the low-skill immigrants. Well, does your research, uh, Federico, indicate anything about the impact of lowering barriers to low-skilled immigration? Yeah, we try to estimate the model, and we find that uh, lowering barriers to low-skill immigration, in general, is, is there are, you know, as I said before, there are uh, some pros and cons. Yeah. But when you try to put this in a quantitative model, overall, we find that immigration at this rate, of course, I mean, if you lower the barriers to zero, maybe it's a different story. But given today's status quo, if you lower migration by just a bit, immigration is beneficial for the representative U.S. citizen. Right. However, there are 
and maybe everyone is aware of this, the implications for income distribution are are are, are very important. No, yeah. for low skill, sure. of course, needless to say, I mean it's a, a it's, it's it's bad for them, no, because they had the result of immigration is lower wages. Right. For high skill, it's the opposite. They highly benefit from low skill immigration. So, but if you put together, you know, let's assume that by the end of the day, you just care about the average one, the average American, then it's somewhat beneficial. Right, I see. Mm. Um, it's not that it's very highly beneficial, but quantitatively, you, you have some benefits of lowering migration barriers. Right. Mm. Uh, well, we've talked a lot about immigration, but I also want to turn again to offshoring, yes. uh, which you're just speaking about and which we've all heard a, a lot about in, in recent years. Uh what does a rise in offshoring have the effect of increased earnings for high-scale occupations? Yes, yeah, so offshoring, as I say, for immigration was beneficial for high-skilled workers, and offshoring was particularly beneficial for them too. Why was that? I, again, I think the simplest way is to give you an example. So let's say that uh, you are working, I don't know if I can tell you, let's say you are designing a new smartphone. No? Right a high-tech smartphone. So you are in Silicon Valley, and you are in charge of designing, you, know, you do the research and development of the new product. You have the new ideas. Uh, and now you have the possibility of having someone to assemble the product that you designed in the other side of the world at a much cheaper place. Yes. At a much cheaper price. Right. So really you have associated a lot of, you have cost savings, no? Now you are going to have a product, but you just worry about the design of the product. No, you have the big idea, you know what to do. But thanks to offshoring, a lot of the production costs is going to be much cheaper thanks to, to that. Right. So that means that if you are selling this product overseas, because most of the, the high-tech smartphones that you have in mind are not only sold domestically but overseas, you will be able to sell this idea, you know, you are really able to sell this product at a much cheaper cost because of the, the prices of offshoring. Right. So it's highly beneficial for the high skilled, no? Uh, what we call is that this is like a trading task. So you can focus on the on the things that you are relatively more productive, you know, like designing the new iPhone, what is the new one, and then once you have uh, design this, then you can count on other people doing the the product, assembling the product at a lower cost. Sort of Sorry. like the classic opportunity cost discussion yeah. that we hear about. Yes. So that means uh, it's beneficial for the high skill. I mean, if you can come with a cheaper cost of production, that means that you are going to be relatively more competitive when you com compete with other producers in different parts of the world. Right, right. Uh, but the problem is that uh, the middle skill are going to suffer from that, no? Right. Well, that actually leads me to yeah. my next question. Yeah. Uh, your research shows that uh, wage decreases hit middle skill occupations hardest. And why do you find that to be the case? Mostly because of this, uh, uh, in my model, no? uh, because of offshoring. No? It's very easy. Thanks to the revolution in communications, transportation, it's very easy to break down the production process nowadays. And those things that are like a routine or that not require a specific skill, it's, very, it's increasingly easy to, to offshore these 
to developing countries where wages are yeah. much more uh, lower than in the U.S. I see. But for the lowest skill, as I said before, offshoring is not a threat. Yeah. Uh, that's the reason why for for the lowest skill, uh, the fact that the high skilled individuals and capital did so well during this year, thanks to the cost associated with offshoring, there was an increase in demand for services. So if you are in charge of designing the iPhone or the this smartphone, you are going to be benefiting from offshoring, but at the same time you are going to have a bigger house, so you will need more gardeners, you will need right. a, a, like two or three cleaners mm -hmm. that can clean your house, and that is going to increase the demand for low-skilled jobs. Right. That's the reason why low-skilled wages uh, are not going to fall as much as middle-skilled. But again, the fact that you have immigrants means that low-skilled wages are not going to increase as much as they will have increased without the migration flows. Right. Uh, well, Federico, I, I asked you into the studio to talk about your research and, and not yourself. Yeah. Uh, but as you are an immigrant to the U.S. from Argentina, uh, did studying this topic feel especially resonant to you, at least compared with some of your other economic research, or was it just another undertaking for you? No, I think it... Uh, so I started thinking about this like three years ago, and as time passed, <laughs> I think it became more interesting for the general public to learn about these issues, uh, particularly with the past uh, uh, elections. It's true that for me it was, uh, on the one hand, I was uh, passionate about this because everyone was discussing about this, so I want, you know, it's something that gives you uh, more focus and and. It makes you happy to 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 see that your research has any any interest on the general public. Sure, but on the other hand, I was frustrated with this in the sense that uh, these topics, particularly migration, is uh, mostly like uh, discussing religion. No, you have a specific idea, right, of whether migration is good or bad. Right, you can present people with many facts, but if they are pro-immigration, nothing is going to make change their mind. And if they have a bias against immigrants, uh, you can present any evidence, but they will never be convinced that there is anything good that you can take out from immigration. Of course, you have people in the middle, but uh, in general, I, with this particular uh, topic, usually you are, com not only with the general public, but even in academia. In academia, migration is a very devised topic. You right. have people like Academics, uh, there is uh, some famous academics that are heavily opposed against immigration, and all the research will find that immigration is bad. And then you have the other group that is uh, mostly the, the opposite, that they will find that immigration. So, in my case, uh, I try to be open minded, uh, and my findings were like it's, it's, a, it's a basket of results. Um, in my research, I think the results are very robust. Immigration, lowering migration barriers, improve the well-being of the U.S., makes the U.S. a richer country. But also I acknowledge that there are very important distributional uh, implications of this. Immigration affects very differently uh, depending on what are your skills in the marketplace. Right, yeah. You know, as I noted when we started speaking, yeah. your, your paper was published in 2014, but it still feels incredibly relevant to 
yes. to today's world. It, mm. It's sort of an evergreen topic. And uh, this has been a fascinating discussion. And I, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you very much for uh, the invitation. It was a pleasure. Again, I'm Tom Heinches, Managing Editor of the Atlanta Fed's Economy Matters Magazine, and thanks for spending some time with us today. I encourage you to visit Economy Matters at frbatlanta.org slash economymatters and read the many interesting features we have there for you, including a link to Federico's paper, which, as I've noted, is a really interesting discussion of this important economic concept. It's, it's worth your time, and I encourage you to, to, uh, to read his work. Please return again next month for another Economy Matters podcast when we'll be speaking with Atlanta Fed economist Larry Wall about banking and specifically the concept of too big to fail. Thanks again for listening. This has been a production of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. For more podcasts on this topic and others, please visit the Atlanta Fed's website at frbatlanta.org.